As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. Hope your week is off to a good start. This is the Mailbag Edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. We come to you every Monday. Thanks for submitting your questions, getting your voicemails, and we have some good ones this week. Tim McMaster here along with Ken Rosenthal. Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Tim. How are you? I am good, and I am not currently injured, as far as I know. Unfortunately, that's not the case for some very important players on teams with big expectations this season. None bigger than Bryce Harper, the reigning MVP in the National League, got hit on the hand with a fastball from Blake Snell Saturday night. He's out indefinitely. Of course, the trade deadline, not that far off, Ken. These injuries are going to be very important. Yes, we've been hearing this all season, Tim. Guys going in and out of the lineup. And let's start with Harper. No matter how you might feel about him, whether you're a Phillies fan or not, and I know if you're not a Phillies fan, you might not like him. But you have to admire the way the guy plays, the fact he has played with an elbow problem the whole season. He's DH because of it, but he's played his heart out, as he always does. And when a guy like that goes down, it is something that hurts not only his team, his fans, but really the whole sport. It's reminiscent to me of Acuna last year. Frankly, we're missing Tatis. It's the same thing. We need the best players playing. We want the best players playing. That's the beauty of the game. That's why we watch. That's one reason anyway. But what happened to Harper, while an isolated thing, and certainly one of the things, the kinds of things that can happen at any point in any season, somebody getting hit by a pitch, it's part of a larger trend. And that trend is what I mentioned. A ton of injuries taking place this season. Now, I don't have numbers in front of me, but I can tell you just from speaking to general managers every week, they are frazzled by what is going on. And we can honestly look back and say, okay, we saw this coming. People did see this coming. Weird offseason during the lockout when the owners forbid teams from talking to players. That's one. Two, shortened spring training. That's two. Number three would be the compressed schedule, slightly compressed, playing 162 games in one fewer week, less off days, nine-inning doubleheaders, back to that. All of these things 
are contributing to the number of injuries in the sport. And I wrote about that a little bit on Friday. Now, let me tell you how bad it is for certain clubs. As we go into Sunday's play, as we tape on Sunday, the Reds had 15 players on the injured list. The Pittsburgh Pirates and Tampa Bay Rays, 14 each, and that's with Franco coming back for the race on Sunday. Lau's still out, Margo's out, Kiermaier's out, a bunch of pitchers. The Twins, 13 players in the injured list, and the Dodgers, 13 players. Now, the Dodgers are a fascinating case study here. This is a team that built its depth like never before, and they're always one of the deepest teams. And yet, they're looking at 10 pitchers on the injured list right now, the latest being Daniel Hudson going after a ground ball the other night. A scribbler tears his ACL. He's out for the season. He was a valuable part of their bullpen. And it's rather amazing that the Dodgers, of all teams, now need a starter. They now need a reliever and possibly offensive help because Muncie and Justin Turner and Bellinger really haven't performed to their capabilities. Now, I would imagine pitching is going to be the greater need because most of their position players are locked into contracts, but that will be something to watch at the deadline. And Peter Gammons, the other day in his column in The Athletic, great column, wrote about how the Yankees don't know exactly where they are yet. The Dodgers don't know exactly where they are yet. The Red Sox, because of so many players that are on the injured list and coming back, Where are these guys going to be come the deadline? What can you count on? The Mets are in the same position with Scherzer and especially DeGrom. You can go contender by contender and look at this, and virtually every team, if they're not riddled by injuries, they certainly have a concern. The Guardians, by the way, have the fewest number of players on the injured list, just three. And really, Karinchak's the only one who is a significant contributor. So they've been fortunate so far. But let's go to the Brewers. Peralta, Woodruff, Aaron Ashby. Now, they're all various stages of coming back, but those have been huge blows. The White Sox, on and on it goes with them. Aloy is still out. Moncada is out. Yasmani Grandal, Liam Hendricks. I can go on and on and on. And yes, it will affect the trade market, but I also believe that it's going to force some teams to kind of wait and see exactly where guys are in their rehabs and just figure out where our roster stands, what our needs are. Now, I'll give you one team that is in an interesting position because of the players coming back, a team that was quite active at the deadline last year. It helped them win a World Series, but might not need to be as active this year simply because of the sheer volume of players who are going to return. That team, of course, I'm talking about is the Atlanta Braves. Mike Soroka, remember him? He's coming back from his Achilles late July, early August. Now, granted, he hasn't pitched in two years, but they're expecting him to return. In the bullpen, Tyler Matzik's coming back, and Kirby Yates, remember, they signed him in the offseason, coming off Tommy John surgery. He's doing well. They're looking at late July, early August for him. So that's a starter, two relievers, and then on the position player side, Eddie Rosario and Ozzie Albies, who eventually will return. So the Braves are in kind of an interesting spot that way. Same with the Red Sox, with Evaldi and Sale and Whitlock, even Josh Taylor. So all of these dynamics are in play. Combine that with, I'll just put this nicely, a lack of star power on the trade market. I mean, (laughs) Frankie Montas, yeah, he's good. Luis Castillo, he's good too. Neither of those guys has done it on the playoff stage. And while each of them has a year of control left, I don't know if you can exactly say they're sure things. They're very good pitchers. No, Don't get me wrong. 
of the relievers available, there'll be a ton available, and some of them are better than others. Some might make a difference, but right now, at least, I'm not seeing the Trey Turner, Max Scherzer quality of player, you Darvish from a few years back, Manny Machado. Nah, it's not out there. So we're about a month away now, and it's going to be a really interesting month to see just how teams come together or fall apart. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be wild, and we actually have a lot of questions this week regarding the trade deadline. I'm sure those are going to continue to come, but some of them talk about the timing as well. So we're gonna get to, to those right now. Let's fire up the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week, you can call us, and a lot of people have over the last week. The number is 646-543-7072. You can also use the email address, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Uh, Ken, we have a listener out there. His name's Rich, and he loves putting together trades, potential trades. And it's not like one player for another it's in-depth <laughs> stuff. And we've we've dodged some of these over the last few weeks, but we got one here that we're going to go with. So I'd love your take on this one. This is from Rich. Um, the Yankees are always involved. I actually don't know if Rich is a Yankees fan, but because they're always one of the teams, I'm, I'm guessing they are. Here it's good you go. to suspect they are. <laughs> this is a three-team deal between the Yankees, the Phillies. Now, this was before the injury to Harper and the Royals. The Yankees get Andrew Benintendi. They pick up the remainder of the $9.3 million from Kansas City. Phillies get Chapman and Herman and money from the Yankees. The Yankees pay half of the remainder of Chapman's $16 million. The Royals get prospects from Philly, and they get Andujar from the Yankees. He doesn't get specific about the prospects from the Phillies, but that's what the Royals are going to be looking for. This is his summation of the deal. Yankees don't need much, uh, but Benintendi, a left-handed bat who can field and hit for average with some pop, will be a perfect fit upgrade over Joey Gallo. Yanks' bullpen has been great with Holmes and King, and they still have Las Vegas coming off the IL soon. Philly is all-in payroll-wise. Just got rid of Girardi. They get a much-needed proven closer and two-plus years of Herman, who is coming off the IL soon uh, and can start or come out of the bullpen. And then finally, Kansas City gets two-plus years of Andujar, and they get some younger talent as well. What do you think? All right, Rich, I'm going to break this down team by team. Let's start with the Royals. You must be a Yankees fan because a Yankees fan is dumping the Yankees excess on all of these unsuspecting teams. This is the kind of trade proposal. And I shouldn't actually even criticize Yankee fans. Fans of all teams do this. Take this guy we don't need, that guy we don't need, that guy we don't need, and give us this six-time All-Star. It doesn't work like that. Now, Andrew Benintendi is not a six-time All-Star, granted. But I would think for Benintendi, the Royals are going to want significant prospects, and I don't know that Andujar would qualify as that at this point. He has been an up-and-down guy for the Yankees. He's had his moments. He can certainly hit. But they would want some really decent prospects for Benintendi, one of the few hitters available, and a number of teams need left-handed hitters. So from the Royals' perspective, you're going to want more. You're not necessarily going to want Miguel Andujar. Phillies, Chapman, Herman, and Money. Okay, yes, those are Phillies' needs, and I do expect the Phillies, even without Harper, to be buyers, to try to fortify their bullpen. Clearly now they might need another bat as well. It makes sense for them. I would definitely say that. It makes sense for them. For the Yankees, though, I'm not so sure it makes sense. 
And yes, their bullpen without Chapman, Herman, Chad Green, and Zach Britton, and Jonathan Loisega has been quite good. But at some point, you're going to want those guys back. And I would expect that if you're the Yankees in a year in which you are trying desperately to win and get back to the World Series, your preference would be to trade prospects for Andrew Benintendi, not major leaguers. Maybe you get them to take a salary, like Chapman, for instance, and you attach lesser prospects. I get it. You can take that route. But I would think if Chapman is right, they want Chapman on their team. And granted, I know he's had problems in the playoffs. I've seen it all. We all have. But I'm not giving him away for Andrew Benintendi if I can do Andrew Benintendi and get him for prospects instead. All right. So not not outlandish, but not the not right outlandish fish for most of these teams. Sorry. Pretty good. No, Sorry, actually, Rich. really good. I just yeah. don't see it necessarily coming together. But it's certainly the right kind of logic. And I will say this, Rich, you know what? Keep them coming. I don't know if we'll always answer them, but I love reading them, if nothing else. So, there Rich, you go. here's your challenge, Rich. Do one without the Yankees. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yep. Uh, okay, next question is voicemail. Here you go. Ken, this is your old buddy, Bill Chuck. Back in the day, the trade deadline was June 15th. Now that MLB has diluted the postseason to include more teams, wouldn't it make more sense to extend the trade deadline to August 31st? so that teams who have a chance to play in October can continue to weigh their options and contending teams would feel encouraged to make deals earlier to get more from their acquisitions? Thanking you and thanking Tim McMaster as always. Thanks, Bill. Tim, Bill actually is a friend and a guy I've known forever, and he's really smart. Now, in this particular case, I am going to disagree with him. I like the deadline where it is, and I'll tell you why. July 31st, August 1st, August 2nd, whatever it is, at that date, you have two months left in the season. You're forcing teams to make decisions. Are you in or are you out? That leads to more action. If you wait until August 31st, there are a couple of things that would happen. One, Certain teams would fall out and wouldn't be necessarily buyers and it would make the deadline less interesting from that perspective. Granted, certain teams might jump in and be more inclined. But the other part of it, and the part that really bothers me about a later deadline, is that, or at least that later deadline, August 15th would be a little bit more palatable to me. But August 31st, you're looking at just one month of getting a rental player. Teams already do not give up much for rental players. They're not going to give up much for one month when they won't part with much for two. So that's another thing. And while you make good points, and while I have heard a number of people say August 15th without the old waiver deadline would be kind of a nice compromise, and I can see that. I can. I still like forcing the action on July 31st because I think what we want is more trades, not fewer, and better trades, more interesting trades. I don't know the trades on August 31st would be as interesting as they are on July 31st simply because the control is not as long. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I will say this, since Bill used the voicemail line, I'm going to give his new book a plug. Bill and Bob Ryan have written a book, In Scoring Position, 40 Years of Baseball Love Affair. I actually got my dad this book for Father's Day. Uh, They went through Bob's scoring book from all the years and found some gems along the way. It's a good book. Bill, thanks for using the voicemail line, and thank you for the question. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, next question's from Max. Uh, he's a Reds fan, I think. He says, who do you think Maley and Castillo are being targeted by? Could they also package Drury or Fam in a trade with them? I would say Maley and Castillo, Castillo especially, are being targeted by all of the usual suspects. The Yankees, I expect, will pursue a starter even though their pitching has been great. You've got Severino, Tyone, and Cortez who are going to get to innings levels that they haven't been in or at for at least several years, if ever at all, in their careers. The Dodgers, without Bueller, with Dustin May, you don't know when he's coming back. With Kershaw always on the verge, it seems, of an injury or at least another trip to the IL. And without Andrew Heaney now as well, clearly they need a starter. The Mets, depending on DeGrom and Scherzer, where they are, they might need one. And that's assuming everyone else stays healthy in that rotation. I could even see lower revenue teams such as the Guardians and the Rays getting involved for Castillo, who has another year of control. He is a guy making $7.35 million this season, so he'll be owed about two and a half, a little under that at the deadline, and then you get another year of him. I can even see them getting involved if they decide that's the route that they want to go because He's affordable in that sense. And both those teams, of course, have very strong farm systems. So really, I would expect it to be a free-for-all for Castillo, for Montas. Maley has pitched better of late, no question about it. And I think he's going to be in demand. But I don't know that he'll be at the same level. I wouldn't expect he would be. Now, you asked about attaching FAM. That, to me, would lower the return. Fam will be owed about $2.5 million as well at the deadline, and teams are not going to necessarily want to take that on. Fam, at this point in his career, he can get hot. He can be an offensive force. He can also be a guy who leads to certain distractions, fantasy football or not. <laughs> I love Tommy, but that's the reality of it. Now, Drury is an interesting guy because he's only making 900000 this year. That will be equivalent to about 300000 at the deadline. You can attach him to a starting pitcher and maybe get a little bit more, but you can also trade him individually and maybe do better that way. So I don't know that that's going to happen. To me, it's probably best breaking off these guys. If you trade for Tommy Pham on August 2nd, he's in your clubhouse just in time for fantasy football season. It's perfect. Uh, next question is another voicemail. Hey, this is Andy, and my question for Ken is, when are you going to pick up the mantle for Jose Ramirez as the MVP of the league? Now, I know Aaron Judge and the Yankees always get all the love and the attention because they're the Yankees, but the Guardians on today, Thursday, sit, sit alone in first place. You said last week you always want your MVP to be a contender. He checks those boxes. And Jose Ramirez 
has carried this franchise. He's put the city of Cleveland on his back, and he's doing so much for this team and this organization. We need somebody in the national media to pick up that mantle. Ken, will you be the guy? Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Andy, I appreciate the invitation. However, I don't know that I will pick up the mantle for anybody just yet. We're not even at July yet. And honestly, that AL MVP race, we think of it as Judge and Ramirez or Ramirez and Judge, depending on your perspective. But it goes beyond those guys. Rafael Devers is in this equation. He is the leader in F-War, second in B-War. Mike Trout, I think we know who he is. He's having a great year. Yes, I know the Angels are not great again. And the one guy coming on, most people don't think of him as an MVP type because they think of him as a DH, but it's Jordan Alvarez. He's been unbelievable for the Astros. They certainly are a contender. Now, Jose is a favorite of mine, really a favorite of everybody's who loves the game. He is someone who has the lowest strikeout rate in the American League. That alone should give him or curry him favor with the voters. But from a standpoint of war, which is what a lot of voters use, at least as one factor as they consider their MVP votes, he is fifth or so in each rating. Actually, he's ninth in B-War. His defense in the Fangraphs ratings is a negative this year. Now, I don't necessarily go by all that too seriously. Another factor to consider is win probability added. We'll discuss it later. It actually measures the value of each play and its worth to a team's winning effort. So he is one of the candidates. He's a great candidate. Devers is a great candidate. Judge is a great candidate. Alvarez is a great candidate. And I would suggest Trout is still a great candidate. We have a long way to go. This thing will sort itself out. But I want to add one thing before I go on this topic, because I know a lot of fans around the country think, ah, Judge, New York, they're going to stuff the ballot box. That cannot happen the way the BBWAA conducts its voting. For each category, MVP, Cy Young, Manager of the Year, Rookie of the Year, there are two voters from each chapter in each league. So two Houston writers vote, two Cleveland writers vote, two Los Angeles writers vote. That's how it works. And New York only gets two as well. This is not the electoral college, folks. So from that perspective, I don't expect there to be a bias. And I expect the writers to look at this quite seriously and assess all of these metrics and try to figure out who the MVP is. People often ask me, oh, why don't they just make it best player? I'll tell you why. It would ruin all the fun, all these debates we have. And we certainly are going to have a good debate in the American League this season. All right. Speaking of those metrics, we have a question about that. Here is Bill. Hi, y'all. This is uh, Bill from Texas. I'm calling about the beloved OPS, which seems to be the most looked at stat for a hitter these days, especially in the three true outcomes player. But is there a way to quantify when the home runs are hitting for for example, if you hit a walk-off grand slam, that home run has to be worth more than a home run that's hit when you're down by eight or up by ten. Is there something that plays into the clutch factor of when these bashers hit their home runs? Thanks. Great show. Always listen. Y'all have a great day. Bill, glad you asked. And I go back to the previous question, and I'll do a better job of explaining win probability added because that is exactly the metric you are looking for. And it does precisely what you're asking. What 
WPA does is measure a player's contribution to a win by figuring the factor by which each specific play made by the player alters the outcome of the game. So there are different weights assigned to different plays depending on all of the circumstances in the game at that point. Now, this is a metric that I use when I consider my MVPs. It's something that most writers look at now. It's quite something when you think about it, just measuring the value of each specific play. And as you would imagine, the guys who are the leaders in this are the guys you'd pretty much expect. I'll give you the top 10. Trout's number one in win probability added. Machado is two. Devers, three. Alvarez, four. Jordan Alvarez. Aaron Judge is fifth. Paul Goldschmidt is sixth. Ty France, seventh. Trey Turner, eighth. Adolis Garcia, a guy who is not necessarily a great player, but a remarkably clutch player. He's up there in this as well. I don't know if I got the 10 there, but that is the group. And it's a pretty spectacular group, honestly. It's the best players in the game, and... As you would expect, that's who they are. So, oh, the number 10 guy is Dansby Swanson. I am sorry. So Dansby Swanson, who's had a great run of late for the Braves, high up there in win probability added. Jose Ramirez, for whatever reason, well, I know the reason. His plays don't add up the way these guys' plays add up. He's 18th in that category. Again, Jose Ramirez has had a great year. He's a great player. There's no doubt about it. And, yes, he is doing this on a lesser team. In terms of sheer value of each play he contributes, it's not the same. And when I say the Guardians are a lesser team, I mean they're the youngest team in the majors. They don't have the star power around Jose that, for instance, the Yankees do around Judge. I'm not saying they're a bad team. They're obviously having a great year. One of the fun teams to watch in the sport right now. All right, we're sticking to voicemail. Here's one more of those. Hi, Ken. This is Daniel from Boston. My question is related to the international draft and qualifying offer negotiations that were discussed during the lockout. Has there been any progress made towards the July 25th deadline? And what are some possible solutions on the board that would make the international draft more feasible and tenable for players in the Latin American ecosystem? Thanks. Just when you thought we were done with talking about the CBA, Ken, it comes back. Well, this is a significant issue, honestly. And Daniel, it's a good question. I haven't heard of any talks along these lines. If you recall from the labor negotiations, these sides are never in a particular hurry and they need a deadline to get their butts moving. And sometimes even when they have a deadline, they say, you know what, let's extend the deadline. I would not be surprised if that happens again. Now, this is and was a contentious issue. There are people on the player side, mostly Latin players, but not entirely Latin players, who oppose an international draft. They want the system to remain the way it is. And then there are people on the league side who say this is the only way to clean up the corruption in some of the Latin American countries, the horrible things that go on. And we detailed this, Maria Torres and I, in a story in The Athletic a few months ago. And I encourage you to read it because it really is kind of a primer for this whole situation. It explains the situation. At least I hope it does. It's quite complicated. So an international draft, what would it do? Well, what baseball says it would do is take away some of the corruption, eliminate the early deals, the deals with 12 and 13-year-olds, the verbal agreements that take place, because there is no draft, there is no randomness to it. A team can get in there early with a kid, strike an arrangement with him, and then when he turns 16, sign him. That would end with an international draft. You couldn't do that. The team would pick a player, and that would be where the player goes. The other 
aspect the league insists would be different about this is that there would be more money flowing to the players. Now, the system is capped. It would remain capped on or in an international draft, but the league says more money would be put into it. And one of the key things here, one of the complaints and legitimate complaints, people who are defending the Latin American players' prospects or advising them or working on their behalf, they will say, and this is true, this is not even in dispute, Soto, Fernando Tatis Jr., Vlad Guerrero Jr., they do not get the same kinds of bonuses as amateurs as their counterparts in the U.S., Canada, and Puerto Rico do in the amateur draft. Puerto Rico is part of the amateur draft, the domestic one. And that is true. Now, baseball will tell you, well, that's because these guys are 16, they haven't had as much of a track record, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but is it fair that Vlad Guerrero Jr. can't get as much money as Henry Davis, for example, top pick in last year's draft? I don't know that I would say it is. So those are some of the issues. Now, the question, I guess, is would a draft, one, clean up the corruption the way baseball anticipates? I expect it would to some degree. And also, could the draft lead to a better situation for Latin American players even though it would take away the free market. Right now, the system is capped, again, but they do have a choice of teams. And those who advocate for, or against the draft, I should say, will say, hey, these guys should be entitled to go where they want. They're signing at 16. Let's go. So it's a really complex issue, as I said. I hope I've not confused everybody entirely. But I do expect that a deal will be reached on this front, and then the qualifying offer will be abolished. And that's how it's going to go. At least that's the way I anticipate it. I do know there is strong opposition on the union side to it. But again, there's a carrot for them. And that's the qualifying offer going away. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra-soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash 
or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, a couple more questions from the email. This first one from Andrew. He says, has framing only been measured in recent years as data has allowed us to understand what pitch should be a strike using digital measurement? If so, and it's a recent only evaluation, how should we consider a recent catcher's framing value versus a Thurman Munson or Johnny Bench where this data wasn't available? How much did those observations in a less statistical era factor into the evaluation of good catching and bad catching? Of course, I love Salvador Perez, but rather than open a can of worms about his Hall of Fame potential, I want to know whether good or poor framing value today can be assessed versus the 150-year history of the game. It can't be. And this is a problem we often run into when trying to compare players from different eras. You can't do it. In this case, more information, more data is available now on catchers and framing. Data that didn't exist when Johnny Bench was playing, for instance. Now, anecdotally, we knew certain catchers were quite skilled behind the plate at stealing strikes, but we couldn't quantify it. Now, that said... Again, this is not just a catching issue. I go back, and I often talk about this. Pre-1947, baseball was essentially an all-white men's club. There were no people of color playing. That's who was playing, just white guys, not people from around the world. So do you look at those players the same way as you look at the players of today? I don't know that you can, but that's okay. That's what the sport was then. We now have... The ability to quantify the Negro Leagues that has come into play the last couple of years, that is helpful to understanding how great those players were. And we cannot fairly compare exactly Babe Ruth to Aaron Judge. It's just not the same game. It's not the same game in a hundred different ways, but it's really not the same game because the population of players is entirely different. That's just the nature of the sport. I'm not saying it was good back then. Trust me, it was not. But at the same time, when you're talking about comparisons, it's always going to be apples and oranges to some extent. So from that perspective, I don't have a problem with knowing catchers today. Certain ones are better framers than other ones. And knowing that back in 1970, we couldn't use that measure. At the same time, keep this in mind as well. Eventually, we're going to get the automated strike zone. And framing is going to be no more as a skill because it's not going to matter. The umpire will no longer be influenced by framing. The ABS, the automatic ball strike system, will not be influenced by framing. It's going to be an entirely different equation yet again and a new way to measure players yet again. Game's always changing. Every sport is always changing. It's just one of the things that you have to deal with. All right, last questions from Brendan. Why doesn't me? And this is uh, this one actually came in months ago, Ken. And I actually saved it for this week because it's 
It's about the days. Brendan says, why doesn't MLB make sure they have 15 games on the 4th of July when most people have the day off or any holiday for that matter, i.e. Memorial Day and Labor Day? It seems like a prime opportunity for max attendance. Has Major League Baseball ever considered trying to recreate an NFL Thanksgiving Day model for baseball games? For example, baseball could schedule a home game for the D.C. and Philly teams, two of the most historic locations in the formation of the country, and nationally televise those games. They could push the baseball and America theme and see if it gains traction as a 4th of July tradition. Fair question, and Phil Mushnick of the New York Post seems to write about this every year when Memorial Day comes and some teams are off and he says it's ridiculous. I don't necessarily disagree with him. I know the schedule is a really complicated thing and it's impossible to get it precisely how you would want. If you designed it based on these 10 things you absolutely had to have, it would still be hard to get all of those 10 things in there. That all said, I don't see this as being a situation where baseball could accomplish what the NFL does on Thanksgiving, or what basketball does, the NBA, on Christmas Day. Memorial Day, July 4th, Labor Day. Those are three holidays that largely take place in the warmer weather, the summer months. People are at the beach. They're not necessarily glued to the television, where Thanksgiving, there's nothing else to watch. You're with your family. You're hanging out. It's cold in many parts of the country. Same with Christmas Day. Holidays, but family holidays where you're inside. So, If baseball tried to achieve that, let's say on July 4th, I don't know that it would be possible. And I don't know that it's necessarily something that you need to strive for. And I'll go even further and say I don't even know that you need 15 games played on that day. I get it. It's cool when there are all these games on the holidays. But if I was a scheduler and I had a list of priorities, I don't know that that would be my number one priority. It would be fun to see, yes, but I don't know that it's necessary. The more important one is the one on the last day of the season when all the games start at the same time, which is really probably the closest we have to what you're talking about. It's not on a holiday. It's just the final day of the regular season. And that has turned into a cool event. Major League Baseball did do pretty good this year. I will say that, Brennan. If you look at the schedule, July 4th, there's 14 games, so 28 of 30 teams in action. And you mentioned the Nationals. The Nationals start at 11.05 a.m., which is kind of wild. There's three other day games. Uh, So they actually did put some thought into the 4th of July this year. Lots of day games, a morning game, the nation's capital. So um, I guess they're trying. Let's say about that. Uh, if you want to get involved in the show next week, you can do it by calling us, 646-543-7072. You can also email the show, Show at gmail.com. Next up on the Athletic Baseball Show, Starkville. On Tuesday, Tony Gwynn Jr. is going to join the show, of course, former player, son of Tony Gwynn, currently broadcasting with the Padres. That should be a lot of fun. Then the roundtable on Wednesday, uh, the 3-0 show Thursday, DVR and Law coming up Friday. And that's a good one the next month or so as we get you ready for the draft on DVR and law. You can join The Athletic for just $1 a month for six months. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. We will not have an episode of this show next week. Ken, it's 4th of July next Monday, so I'm giving you the day off. And we're not playing. Why aren't we playing on July 4th, you might ask? I know. I know. Well, in, in fairness, we record on Sunday, so whatever. Anyway, uh, enjoy your 4th of July. Uh, you won't have to tune into this episode, but we'll be back with you in two weeks with much more from the mailbag. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to everybody again.
Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.